0: Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud, so good as always to have you with me. Tonight, in keeping with the new springtime and the Easter season, I am repeating a story whose first broadcast was warmly received and whose theme is grace, hope, renewal, possibly a kind of resurrection. Tonight's author is the German writer Heinz Risse. He was born in Düsseldorf in 1898. When he was seventeen, he and his entire high school class were drafted into the First World War. Of the twenty-one students in his class, he was the only one who survived. Rissa attended the universities of Marburg, Frankfurt, and Heidelberg, where he studied economics, philosophy, and sociology. He worked in the field of economics even after he began publishing stories and novels. For him, literature was not an end in itself but a means of self-realization and inquiry into life's bigger questions. He was interested in the themes of guilt, repentance, freedom, justice, and truth. The philosophical bent is clear, but he was also a first-rate storyteller of great empathy. He tells stories of individual struggles, always keeping in mind that they are general human experiences and believing that the only true guide is the individual conscience. Tonight's story is called The Theft, a brief episode, but it wrestles with notions of guilt and atonement. The protagonist's intended confession hadn't anticipated the circumstances he encounters, and he must seek another answer. The author and critic Hans-Erich Nossack said something about Riss's novels that applies as well to this short story. At the end of his books, said Nossack, Risse's stories cross a boundary into something almost beyond expression, but the reader feels it is a new beginning, and every everyone must take these first steps alone. The theft by Heinz Risse. The girl opened the door. a strange gentleman stood there and removed his hat. Foreigner she thought the cut of the suit they're worn differently here and a tie, brightly colored like a hummingbird. Yet he was an older gentleman. His hair was gray, not just at the temples. "'Can I help you?' she asked. "'Yes, I would like to speak with Mr. Nissing,' answered the stranger. "'He does still live here, doesn't he?' He gestured with his hand back toward the street. "'There's no name on the gate,' the gesture seemed to say. "'Yes,' the girl said, "'he lives here, but you can't talk with him.' "'No?' asked the stranger with a perplexed look, "'Mr. Nissing isn't dead, is he? He must be out of town, right?' The girl smiled self-consciously. "'No,' she replied, "'Mr. Nissing isn't dead or out of town. He's taking a bath.' "'I see,' he said with evident joy. "'That changes everything. I'll wait until he's finished. I'll sit down in his office. It's the first door on the right, miss, isn't it?' The man stepped in, and the girl moved out of his way. "'You seem to know the house pretty well,' she said. "'Pretty well,' he retorted. "'Extremely well. I was here when Mr. Nissing's father built this house. But you probably hadn't even been born yet, had you?' "'No,' said the girl, "'I hadn't been born yet.' "'Interesting,' said the stranger as he opened the door to the office. "'Yes, and now you can go about your work. You do have work to do, don't you? Would you hang my hat in the front closet, please?' The girl took his hat "'It might be a little while before Mr. Nissing comes down,' she said. "'He just went into the bathroom a few minutes ago.' "'A little while,' he replied, raising his arms in an almost prayerful fashion. "'What is a little while? "'What little can that be, my child, even if it's hours and days? "'I haven't seen Mr. Nissing for more than thirty years. Thirty-three years and four months ago we saw each other for the last time, "'if you care to know exactly.' The girl shook her head. That long, eh? she said. I'll I'll take your hat. She shut the door behind her and left. The stranger examined the room and found that it was just as it had been years ago—the engraving on the wall, the bookcase, the desk, and even the armchair in front of it. Only the leather had gotten a bit shabby in the meantime. The stranger felt a certain anxiety at the thought that the furniture had stood there, year in, year out, cared for, dusted, when all the while life had tossed him about like a ball, here, there, everywhere. And even if the fear of falling disappeared gradually, for it was years before the poor emigrant had become a gentleman, still there remained the sense of guilt after the wicked thing he had done. No, not wicked, after the shabby thing he had done. The man looked at the middle drawer of the desk, BACK THEN THE ROSETTE HAD BEEN LOOSE, AND IT HAD RATTLED WHEN THE KEY WAS TURNED, BUT IN THE MEANTIME IT HAD BEEN SCREWED TIGHT, BUT THE KEY WAS STILL THERE, STILL THERE TODAY. A HUNDRED YEARS IN YOUR SIGHT ARE LIKE A DAY, BUT WHAT DOES THAT SIGNIFY FOR THE EVENTS THAT OCCUPY THAT DAY? THE MAN HAD HELD THE KEY IN HIS HAND THIRTY-THREE YEARS AND FOUR MONTHS AGO. STRANGE HOW THINGS REPEAT THEMSELVES WITHOUT OUR MAKING A CONSCIOUS EFFORT The man suddenly found that he had the key in his hand again, and was turning it in the keyhole. But today he didn't want to do anything that called for secrecy. He wanted to confess, loudly and clearly, one word, Pekavi, I have sinned. But perhaps it wasn't to be. The stranger pulled on the key, and the drawer followed. The contents were the very model of order. On the left were two black bank-books. In the middle were bank statements and checkbooks, and on the right—on the right was the money, a pile of banknotes neatly bundled there for the taking, just as they had been back then. The stranger doubted whether Nissing had even counted the bills. The stranger had wanted to confess. But now an easier way out presented itself. What were thirty-three years and four months, less than a day— In the morning you take money from the drawer, and in the afternoon you put it back, as if it had never been done, a magic feat of the soul. The man reached into his pocket and took a bundle of bills from it. With a hasty hand he went through it until he had found three one-thousand crown notes, the initial capital with interest, he thought. He put the rest back into his pocket, but he didn't immediately put the three-thousand in the drawer with the other bills. It can't be this easy, he thought, to atone for such a shabby deed. I was going to confess, wasn't I? The sudden sound of footsteps in the hall forced him to decide. He placed the money under the bundle of notes and shut the drawer. A moment later, Nissing entered the room and recognized his guest immediately. Is it you? he asked. I can't believe it. It's been so long. You live abroad. Did you make out all right? "'Well, of course you did, from the look of you. "'I spoke with someone who had met up with you. "'I think he was in your factory. "'That was five or six years ago. "'But you've never written me a line. "'No. "'You had a tough time of it, didn't you? "'But now that's all behind you, right? "'You'll stay for a while, won't you? "'A few weeks, perhaps? "'You'll be my guest, of course. "'There's plenty of room in my house. Uh, "'Forgive me,' interrupted the visitor. "'I have to be on my way tomorrow. "'My ship leaves in the evening.' I used to have time. Now I have money. I guess we're not intended to have both at the same time. I just wanted to see you again. D- don't misunderstand. A visit of five minutes would be enough. I would like to ask your forgiveness.' Mr. Nissing laughed. "'Ask my forgiveness,' he said. My goodness, but well, you're an odd one. Why, because you haven't written? But there was no need. Our friendship never depended on that. ha, <laughs> ha, His laughter filled the room, and he slapped his guest on the shoulder. "'Come into the living-room,' he said. "'We'll drink a bottle of wine.' "'It's a start,' thought the stranger. "'But I'm afraid to jump in.' They went into the living-room. "'Are you married?' asked the guest. "'I was,' returned Nissing. "'My wife is dead. She died ten years ago. I got married two years after you left. How about you?' "'I live alone. Do you have any children?' Yes, a son. He is twenty-two. Twenty-two, eh? A hopeful age. Yes, hopeful. The guest fell silent for a moment. You said that, he resumed, as if you were skeptical about hope. Excuse me, but I thought I heard an undertone. Maybe I'm wrong. No, you're not wrong. But I couldn't say anything for sure about it right now. Maybe later. It all depends on the test.' whether he passes it or not, you see. I'm testing him. What kind of test? Nissing drew back. I don't know if I should talk about it now, he said. Maybe I should wait for the results. He looked at his guest doubtfully. On the other hand, he murmured, What do I have to lose? We're good friends, aren't we? Yes, good friends, replied the guest. Nissing's warm-hearted words made him uncomfortable. Do you remember— asked Missing suddenly, that I was robbed many years ago. It really wasn't that much money, one thousand or twelve hundred crowns, if I remember rightly. Only then it seemed like a lot of money, most of the honorarium I received for my first invention. I kept it in my father's desk. He had died a short time before. But no, you couldn't possibly know about that. I think you had already left the country. "'My throat is getting dry,' thought the guest. "'You kept the money in the desk?' he asked, and didn't lock the drawer? No, I didn't. And the money was stolen. Not all of it, about half. The thief left the rest. Did you suspect anyone? Yes, of course. I had a housekeeper, the only one I could imagine that could have committed the theft, so I dismissed her. Did you tell her why you were letting her go? No, I thought that would be useless. She would certainly have denied it, and I couldn't prove a thing. What happened then? Nothing. I became a little suspicious after that. Oh, I still have money lying around now and then, but I count it and watch every one who comes near it. That's how I test them. Including your son? Yes. Where do you keep the money you use to lead them into temptation? In the desk in my office. Do you write down the serial numbers of the bills? No. But you have written down the amount. Why should I? I know how much is in there. THE GUEST SHRUGGED HIS SHOULDERS. IT IS EASY TO MAKE A MISTAKE WITH NUMBERS, HE SAID. THEY HEARD THE FRONT DOOR OPEN. THERE HE IS NOW, SAID NISSING. HE TOLD ME AT NOON THAT HE WAS GOING TO BE WITH FRIENDS TO-NIGHT, AND I LEFT THE QUESTION OPEN AS TO WHETHER OR NOT I WAS GOING TO THE THEATER. I JUST SENT THE GIRL AWAY. HE WILL THINK I HAVE GONE OUT. THE STEPS GREW SOFTER AND SOFTER AS THEY WENT upstairs. HE'S PROBABLY CHANGING CLOTHES, SAID NISSING. "'Don't you think,' said the guest, "'that this suspicion against your own son "'is a terrible thing? "'Do you at least have a reason to suspect him?' "'Nissing nodded to his guest. "'One,' he asked. Three, four, or five. "'His expenditures, his debts. "'Please spare me the trouble of enumerating them all. "'But today I will know if I should mistrust him or not.' "'They sat and drank without speaking. "'After a while,' They heard the steps come down the stairs, and then they heard a door. "'He's gone into the office,' said Nissing. The guest nodded. Two or three minutes passed, weighted by an almost unbearable tension. Then they heard the door shut again. Everything was still. "'He should be told before he goes,' said the guest. "'This is dreadful.' He began to get up. "'What are you doing?' asked Nissing. "'Please, sit still.' "'Everything is already decided anyway.' "'Are you sure it wasn't the girl who absolutely sure?' The front door closed, and Nissing arose immediately. Two minutes,' he said. The guest nodded. "'I should have confessed,' he thought. "'But to whom? "'To this man who sets traps? "'Impossible.' He collapsed into his chair. It was almost ten minutes before Nissing returned. That's strange, he said. Really strange. What's strange? It's not right. The amount of money isn't right. So he did steal? No! Nissing exclaimed, almost shouting. No, he didn't steal, or I made a mistake, I can't tell. It's not the right amount. Maybe I should have written down the amount after all. What's the matter? asked the guest. Nissing cried, There are— "'There are more crowns in the desk than I put in. "'I counted them five times and got the same amount each time. "'This time, anyway, I'm sure I'm right. "'There are exactly one thousand crowns more in the desk "'than I remember should be there. "'So you didn't remember the amount you put in after all,' said the guest. "'He couldn't keep from trembling. "'A thousand crowns too many are two thousand crowns too few, "'a computing feat of the soul.' Nissing put his head in his hands. "'Yes,' he said. "'I guess that's the only way it can be. "'Whatever would prompt my son to put a thousand crowns in my desk? He doesn't even have them to give. If he did have them, he would have to have stolen them.' "'Yes, he probably stole them.' "'What did you say?' "'Nothing.' They were silent. Finally, they had some supper and spoke of other things.' I ought to confess, thought the guest, but not here. How frightful it all is. You can put God to the test, and a dog or a bridge, but it all goes to pieces when you try it with human beings. Guilt everywhere. A morass of guilt. No one can go along and hold his head up high. I'm tired, he said finally. Nissing showed him to the guest room. "'Good night. I'll see you in the morning.' "'Yes. Good night.' The guest didn't go to bed, but sat in an armchair and stared at the wall. Two thousand crowns stolen, and the test had been passed. But that was probably no worse than stealing a thousand crowns and casting suspicion on an innocent person and getting her thrown out of the house. Worse? Surely it was better.' My money is well invested, he thought, with an ironic expression on his face. A bad person saved from a suspicion that fits him to a T. That is a golden investment, an investment pleasing in the eyes of God. But now what? There were all kinds of possibilities, but they were all of no avail, because no one can believe someone who accused a young person and with the same breath must confess that thirty-three years and four months ago He perpetrated a shabby act and kept silent about it for so long. No, no one would believe such a person. The guest could wait up until the young man returned and tell him that he should confess to what he did. The guest could explain to the young man that he knew about the theft of the two thousand crowns. But wasn't it very likely that the young man would shrug his shoulders and go to bed? It was very likely. Whoever is young shrinks from seeing guilt in that which is not proven to be guilt, and conscience isn't always the accuser that summons the judge. It was four o'clock in the morning. Beyond the trees outside the window it was beginning to grow light when the guest sat down at the table and began a letter. It had suddenly occurred to him, he wrote to his friend, that he had another call he had to make in the port city which made it necessary for him to depart immediately. HE ASKED HIS FRIEND TO FORGIVE HIM FOR LEAVING SO SUDDENLY AND WITHOUT SAYING good bye. AS TO HIS SON, WOULD NISSING NOT BE WILLING TO SEND HIM TO HIS, THE GUEST'S, FACTORY, FOR SOME HEAVY JOB OR OTHER THAT HE WOULD BE SUITED FOR? ALSO, HE SAID, AS NISSING KNEW, HE, THE GUEST, HAD NO HEIRS. THOSE WHO ARE SUSPECTED OF THEFT, HE WROTE, ARE SIMILAR TO THIEVES, AND I KNOW FROM EXPERIENCE HOW THEY FEEL. For a minute he considered striking out from experience, but then he considered that various meanings could be read from it, so he let it stand. One can heal them, he continued, by trusting them. One mustn't put them to the test, for they won't pass it. But as blindly chosen heirs, they are capable of every good deed. Confession, he thought, confession and justification. He left the letter on the table and went down the stairs in stocking feet. Only when he was outside did he put his shoes back on. A blackbird was singing, and the dew was on the flowers in the garden. At the gate he turned and looked back. It seemed to him that in his friend's bedroom a light was still burning, but it was entirely possible that he was deceived by the reflection of the rising sun in the window. You've been listening to The Theft by Heinz Risse. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been For Reading Out Loud. Let me hear from you, and let me know what stories or authors you would like to hear. Drop me a line, if you will, at rfigge, that's R-F as in Frank, I-G-G-E, at Worcester E-D-U. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, stay safe. All the best.